All right, if you're here and you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take it and turn to the book of John chapter 6. We're going to continue to do the same thing we did last week. Uh, we've got uh, this week and next week, we're going to finish up uh, the life and testimony of Amy Carmichael. And we're going to use the scriptures that, that, uh, that were impressed upon her life at different times in her life. Uh, to hopefully the Lord will speak to us through that. And so I want to pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you again for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the life that's, that is found only in him. Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful until the end. And father, I pray that through the life and testimony of, um, one of your servants, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged. And father, I pray uh, most of all that your world, your word, uh, would prick our hearts. And Father, we pray, especially now that you would feed your people. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you'll remember from Amy's life that she was born uh, about 1867, uh, the northern coast of Ireland. Uh, Her father was an owner of a flour mill. And she was called into missions after uh, going to several conferences on holiness. She was, uh, it was impressed upon her that there were thousands of people dying each year in the land of China that nobody was doing anything about. And so she felt the call of God on her life to go somewhere and take the gospel where nobody was preaching it. And so if you remember that as she uh, submitted this to the Lord in prayer, she ended up uh, feeling the call to go to Japan. And so we finished up at the end of last week where Amy was on a ship she was headed to Japan, and now she's serving in Japan, and uh, the culture is so much different than hers. Some of the things that she talks about is that um, now that she's in Japan, uh, it's lonely over there. Remember when we left, she was dropped off on the port. Uh, her luggage was surrounding her. It was raining. She was drenched, and she couldn't speak a lick of Japanese, and the Japanese couldn't speak a lick of English, and it ended up through God's providence that they took her. Give me just a little head nod. Just, you remember this? They, they ended up taking her to a place where a businessman was, English businessman. He knew of some missionaries in town, and by the end of the night, she was safe and sound in a hotel, and she says that it was obvious that the angels were doing their business around her because they were keeping her exactly where she needed to be. And so as we continue on and now she's gotten to where she's supposed to be in Japan, she talks about the loneliness of the culture that it's a very public culture. There's no privacy, but there's nobody uh, that shares her heart around her. So there's a bit of loneliness going on. And she said, uh, interestingly enough, how lonely it could be in a place that was so public. She said that the walls all seemed like paper. Uh, if you've ever seen Japanese uh, landscapes and movies and such, they all have that real thin, almost looks like tissue paper. She said if you were to lick your finger and, and touch it, that it would become transparent. So she said it was almost like there were peepholes all around. She said, but that was nothing because all of the houses were filled with windows. And so you could go by somebody's house and they seemed like they did everything in front of the window. And she said, and the, one of the strangest things about the Japanese culture was that the bath system in late 1800s was the bath was in the front yard. And so I guess much like uh, plantation life, there's a bathtub. You fill it with water every once in a while and you cycle the whole family through it. Like that's strange to us because we, we emptied a bath after each one. But that's the way things were done years ago. And she said that uh, as she adapted to the culture, the front yard bath is something that her, her Irish taste just couldn't take. So she passed on that and uh, found other ways to go about bathing. Didn't you want to hear about someone's bathing procedure today? Just making sure you're still there. And so, um, anyways, 
So despite all of her loneliness, despite her seeking the Lord and trying to figure out exactly what it is the Lord wants her to do in Japan, uh, a, a helper comes along, someone who was, um, I wouldn't want to use the term uh, slave, helper, her assistant. So she has someone who's like an assistant, uh, who's a paid worker, and that individual has a heart for following Christ just like Amy does. And so she she ends up going to a missionary banquet, and there's there's assigned seating all around the banquet. And so she's only got one friend in the midst of the people that are at this banquet. And she shares a story about going to the banquet and her friend is assigned to sit at a table with someone else. And so she's sitting at the table all alone and she talks about the wrestling within her to gladly offer up her friend so that someone else could enjoy her company. And she talks about enduring loneliness at a banquet and and helping, excuse me, and trying to enjoy someone else getting the benefit of sharing her friend. You can imagine what this is like in a culture where you don't know anybody, where you can't talk to anybody, that it would be very easy to be selfish. And she talks about what that's like. And so she writes us a short poem about what it's like losing her best friend in the midst of this banquet. And it's, she says, after that she wrote this poem, Amy felt inclined to tear it out of her letter. It was too personal, too humiliating, but she decided the Lord wanted her to let it stand, to tell its tale of weakness and of God's strength. She was finding at first hand that missionaries are not set apart from the rest of the human race, not purer, nobler, or higher. Wings are an elusive fallacy, she wrote. Some may possess them, but they are not very visible, and as for me, there isn't the least sign of a feather. Don't imagine that by crossing the sea and landing on a foreign shore and learning a foreign lingo, you burst the bonds of outer sin and hatch yourself a cherubim. And so she says, listen, gang, she says, don't think because you get on a boat and go to a foreign land that this body of sin is done away with. Like you're not a magical different person because you surrender the call to be a missionary. I've given you a great definition before of a missionary. It's a relocated follower of Christ. Right? Nothing special happens in the call to be a missionary. You still have the same struggles. So when Natalie came and shared with us all about Africa, that was the same Natalie that left here. Nothing, nothing, nothing changed on her boat ride or I guess now airplane ride over to Africa. It's the same Natalie that was here. Now she's just serving the Lord in a different context. Doesn't that definition, doesn't that make you feel like you should change the way you live here now? That we're all called to be missionaries wherever we are. That there's not, there's not different categories of followers of Christ. We're all followers of Christ. A missionary is just a follower of Christ in a different context. And so you should be doing the same thing to reach people here that if the Lord called you to China that you would be doing to reach people there. Like your life shouldn't look any different. It should be the same life. And so moving on, she talks about, as she's in Japan, the awkwardness of the church meetings. And so she's taken the gospel to Japan. She's going to naturally gather people for meetings. And she talks about how awkward they are. She says that there isn't a time where she can remember that she got five straight uninterrupted minutes to talk about anything. She said there were naked children running around. She said there were idols everywhere looking down at the things that they were doing. Right In Japan, you've got a, a different culture. They worship idols. And so there's idols all around the town. They said wherever they would try to study the Bible, there would be idols present. She talks about gongs going off in the background. How would you like every two or three minutes, we just had a giant gong somewhere in Windsor that went off while I was preaching. Like I think that if it was at the right time, that would be kind of cool every once in a while. But I think for the most part, it would be pretty distracting, right? 
She says that there's gongs in the background, there's nursing babies, there's, there's undressed children running around, and then there's idols all around. And so this makes for a pretty interesting church gathering, right? And can you imagine having this conversation with the Lord? Lord, you, you called me here to share the gospel with these people, but they won't be quiet. I have the opposite problem. But can you imagine that? That, that always being interrupted? Can you imagine the, the heartache that that would bring you? Because you've, you've got this message impressed on your heart that you're going to take to this people that don't know it, the gospel, the good news, and, and you can't get any quiet time to share it with them. And so as she keeps going on, she talks about more and more, and I was really interested in this. She talks about more and more of the personal difficulties of being someone that's been called to another place for the sake of the gospel. And so here we are. She says she's been talking about uh, being more like the Japanese and less of a Western style. Okay, so she doesn't want to be European. She wants to be like the culture she's trying to reach. And this is what she says. She said, if there were less of what seems like ease in our lives, they would tell more for Christ and souls. We profess to be strangers and pilgrims seeking after a country of our own, yet we settle down in the most unstranger-like fashion, exactly as if we were quite at home and meant to stay as long as we could. And so she says, we're out there preaching that we serve the Lord, that this land is not our own. And she says, but when you step back and you take a look, it looks like we're real comfortable here and we plan on staying here for a long time. And she says that it would speak much more volumes for Christ. If we were a little more uncomfortable here, the gospel would go much farther. It's a pretty convicting statement. Then she goes on in another passage. And she's in the midst of preaching to a place that doesn't know Christ. There's missionaries that are already there. So she's got some missionary interaction. And what she wants to do is she wants to, to, when sharing the gospel with these Japanese folks, when they want to make a decision to follow Christ, her advice to them is that they go home and they burn all of their idols. Okay. This is a culture that is, is steeped in idol worship. There's household gods all over the place. And she says that when you come to Christ, and you make a commitment to follow him, you need to turn away from all those other idols and burn them. And the missionaries around her told her that she was taking things too far and that that wasn't the way that their culture operated. But Amy realized that if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to turn from all of your old ways. And so she recommended to all of them that when they make a decision to follow Christ, they burn all of their household idols. And you can see how extreme this would have been, right? And she says this, She says, the fact that many might and probably would be turned back could not be a proof that this course was wrong. Because in John 6, 66, we read, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And so what they had done is they had gone back to the people and they kind of, I guess we would call this um, like a survey. They go back and they survey the people who came to Christ through the other missionaries and they survey the, the followers of Christ who became Christians through Amy's ministry, the ones who had burned all their idols. And what they found is that the ones who Amy recommended that they go home and burn all their idols, turning from their old way of life, those people were still following Christ towards the end of their life. And the ones who didn't go home and make a clean break from their household idols, they all fell away and they went back to their old way of life. And so she quotes John chapter 6 verse 66, and this is what it says. 
As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so early on in John chapter 6, you have Jesus telling people that he's the bread of life. He's living water. This is easy for them to understand. And then he goes on later in the passage, and he's going to say something more difficult that if you want to be a follower of Christ, you've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he's talking about something in a very particular context. But they think, wow, this is a really difficult saying that you're giving to us. And at that difficult saying, many people stopped following Jesus. And someone who stops following Jesus never was a follower of his in the first place. Okay? So don't get wrapped up in the, they were saved and now they're not. The scriptures are very clear that if you start walking with Jesus, if you put your head to the plow and you turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And so this is people who started on the journey, just like Alan was talking about in the children's message. The, the seed fell on a rocky path or on the side of the road. It looked like it was coming up and then it went away. It died. And this is those people. And so what she's getting at is she says, listen, gang, the only people who make it the distance in this particular context are folks who make a clean break with their old way of life and they move on forward with Christ. And so that begs the question for us. Is there anything in your old way of life that you're still that you're still clinging to? She tells story after story. She says there's often times where we pray about things. We pray about different opportunities that the Lord has given us. And she says while we're praying about those opportunities, Satan is buying them up. We say we're praying about it. We're thinking about it. It's actually procrastinating about it. And as we're thinking about what we should do, Satan is just taking advantage and taking every opportunity to get ahead of us. And so that comes with anything in your old way of life that can creep back in and steer you away from following Christ. And so as we go on through more of Amy's life, she talks about more of the the difficulties of being a missionary. And she talks, this is very ironic of the timing. She talks about missionary meetings when they would come home and they would share with people about what it was like on the mission field. And she says this. She says, the merest suggestion of anyone's choosing missionary work because it was noble and grand or a mission field because it was pleasant horrified her. How could people at home write of delightful missionary meetings? Had they absorbed nothing of the needs of unmet, of the unmet, cries unheeded, griefs uncomforted? Did they attend for nothing but the tea and cake, the conversation, the chance to examine exotic curios, and then tell themselves that they were doing all that could be expected of them? Missionary work is a grain of sand. The work untouched is the pyramid. And then she says, listen. She says, face it, look and listen, alone with God, then go, let go, help go, but never, never, never think that anything short of this is being interested in missions. Never, until this point is reached and passed, delude yourself into believing that you care at all. She says, gang, don't fool yourself that you care about missions until you're going Letting someone go or helping someone go. And I thought about Natalie coming to our church. I thought about her sharing about her missionary things in Africa. And the work that she's doing with these boys that are called Garibou boys. They're boys as young as four years old that are are given up and given to uh, an Islamic priest for him to raise so that they can learn the Quran. Four years old, these kids are given up. Their parents live hours away. 
Oftentimes the priest takes money from the parents and then the boys are sent out in the street to beg for food and housing and lodging and all that stuff. And so Natalie and some of the other people that are with her have bought this piece of property, a house, and they feed the kids and they house the kids. But they can only do it one day a week because they don't have enough help. How can we as a church... Listen to Natalie about her missionary experience and say we care if we're not willing to do something to help. You see what Amy's saying? She says, how can people listen to me and say how delightful it is and then say they care and then go and do nothing? Even within our Southern Baptist Convention, the International Mission Board has dozens of families that are lined up ready to go into full-time missionary service, but the funds aren't there. All we need is more money to do more missions, but it's not there. And so Amy, very distraught about this, says, never until this point is reached and passed, delude yourself into believing that you care at all. And that is from a missionary themselves. And so as you keep going on through Amy's life, there's, uh, there's more and more things. There's a, there's a tendency in missionary life during this time for reporters to gloss over the bad things of missionary life or the difficult things of missionary life and to make a lot of the rosy things, right? Uh, when I was in the army, if you would have asked me when I was in the army, I would have told you that things were miserable. Now that I'm detached from the army and years down the road when i look back i go wow you know that wasn't so bad that was a pretty good time any of you have different situations like that where you worked a particular job Uh, many of you have heard stories of you picking tobacco you look back fondly on picking tobacco but while you were in it nasty and sticky and hot all, all summer you hated it then you look back now and you know what all kids should do that and you never would have thought that when you were doing it as a kid right you would have thought boy this is this is slavery here and uh I gather by some of your smiles that you agree. And so the further you get from something, the more glamorous it gets. But along came this reporter who didn't gloss over things of missionary life. And it says that she was far ahead of her time as a missionary reporter. The constituency was accused, excuse me, the constituency was accustomed to a certain triumphalism in missionary stories. Not that there were none like Amy who told it straight, but there were many who popularized mission work by dramatizing the successes and skipping lightly over what was far more commonplace than success. And then she says, there isn't much of a halo in real life. We save it all up for the missionary meetings. And so she says, gang, being a missionary is not glamorous. There's no halo. It's work. It's a daily grind in serving the Lord. It's a daily grind And brothers and sisters, our lives should be that same daily grind in serving the Lord. Serving the Lord is difficult and it's uncomfortable. And he tells us that it's going to be that. He says, but in the end, it's all worth it. Gang, our Savior requires nothing less from us than absolute sacrifice and absolute surrender to whatever he's called us to. And if you go, well, this isn't glamorous, this isn't pretty, and all of that, neither was the cross. And that's what Jesus was called to. And don't think for a second that your life should be any easier. And so as she keeps going, as she keeps going through the scriptures, uh, excuse me, as you keep going through her life, uh, you read some other things that are, that disappoint her. And so what's happened now is that 
she's she's beginning to get sick in Japan, right, because of the tropical climate. And so she ends up getting so sick that the doctor sends her over to China so that she can recover because the climate's a little better. And so uh, between trying to learn the Japanese language and the uh, particular climate, she had gotten so beaten down that she couldn't serve there anymore. So the doctor, she gets doctor's orders to go to China. And so now she's in China, and it says this. These were words often quoted by Amy Carmichael. It would be impossible to exaggerate her sense of the seriousness of her calling and by contrast of the apparent superficiality of much in India that called itself Christianity. And so I didn't skip far enough ahead. So she gets well in China and then a door opens up for her to go to India. So now she's serving the bulk of her time in India and says this. By contrast, the apparent superficiality of much in India that called itself Christianity. The saddest thing one meets is the nominal Christian. I had not seen it in Japan where missions are younger. The church here is a field full of wheat and tares. And she says, gang, as a missionary, the thing that is the most sad to see is someone who claims the name of Christ and then they act however they want to act. And she goes on uh, a little further. And then we're going to go back into the passage about the wheat and tares. She says that uh, there was another girl who came along who became her friend. And one day this girl comes up with an idea for trying to tell people about Christ. Right? We're always looking for ideas, how to gather a crowd, how to tell people about Christ. And it gets frustrating because people don't want to hear about Christ oftentimes. And so this girl one day came up with an idea for, the draw- for drawing the women to hear the gospel. She would teach them to knit with some pink wool she had been given. And she said, and they'll love me more and like to listen when I talk about Jesus. And Amy says that she couldn't agree with that. She explained that the gospel needed no such frills. It's the power of God for salvation. Sarah, this is a girl's name, protested that there was nothing in the Bible which bore upon pink wool and knitting needles. Indeed, there was. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. There was no need for tricks which might open houses, Amy said. Houses were open. No need for methods of helping to humanize and fill bare and empty lives. These women have a full day's work. To try to help God with pink fancy work was, she felt, plain unbelief. And I thought, boy, even 200 years ago, roughly, they were trying to lure people in to hear about Christ. And that's what we do. Try to lure people in. What's the next thing that we can do so that we can tell people about Christ? And in the short amount of time I've been a pastor, this is how people learn about Christ best. There's roughly 50 of us in this room. If you die to yourself and you live to Christ, that's the best testimony that can ever be given. That's better than bringing in any sort of circus or dog and pony show that you could ever come up with to draw a crowd. That's better than any sort of crusade. It's better than anything else because that's God's plan. You see, the gospel, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. When people see the power of God being lived out in your life, they are drawn to Christ and they will naturally come to him. 
You don't need to spend money to do fancy things at church. People need to hear this word right here. And that's the power of God unto salvation. But the way that people listen to this is that it takes effect in your life. And your credibility gives them ears to hear this. And one of the problems with church in our area, eastern North Carolina, is that the church is wheat and tares. It's not popular to talk about. Billy Graham said in any given church, this is Billy Graham, right? He's your age. So this isn't a young guy saying this. He said that in any given church, 50% of people in the church are actually saved. He says that his thought was that the church was half wheat and half tares. That means that when Jesus said, in the last days, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And on the last day, he'll say, I never knew you. How painful is it going to be for people when they think they serve the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they get to heaven, or they get to the gate of heaven, and they hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And it's going to happen to maybe half by Billy Graham's estimate. Half. And it would be dangerous for you to think that we're an elitist church and anything is different here. Pretty gut-wrenching, isn't it? We've covered the book of 1 John. How can you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've been born again? And he says you walk in the light. And How do you know you're walking in the light? Because in you there's no darkness at all. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, our God has called us to nothing less than total surrender with our lives. It doesn't matter what you want or what you prefer when you become a follower of Christ. It only matters what he wants and what he prefers. And that's how you can separate the wheat from the tares. When the chips are down, when you've been upset, what's your heart look like? Eager to serve the Lord? Get upset. And she says, the worst thing, the saddest thing that we ever saw... We're nominal Christians. And she goes on. We're going to end with some high notes, but we've got to get there. And so listen to this. She says that missionary work in a place where Christ has never been named is sometimes less arduous than in places where, though named, he has not been honored by the lives of holy obedience. How were the heathen to see Christianity in action? How feel its force when so many who went by the name of Christian were nothing more than the descendants of people who had crossed over during one of those mass movements of the early 19th century? A hollow Christian life, she said, is one of the worst things for the spread of Christianity. She says this. They were, for the most part, this is people who had crossed over through mass evangelism. She said they were from lower caste. Remember in India, you've got the caste system. She says they were from lower caste. Lured by the hope of worldly gain. They lived in a sort of twilight, far from the true gospel. They lived in a sort of twilight, far from the true gospel. These are people from a lower caste who have, who have, you know, passed over, crossed over, been saved is language that we would use. But they were only doing it for gain, right? This is what we face in our area of the world. People who come to Christ because he can offer them eternal life. And they want to take his salvation. They want to take him to be the savior of the world. 
but they don't want to make him Lord of their life. And I want to tell you that if you think you can do that, you've been sold a lie. Because you either get all of Christ as Savior and Lord, or you get none of him. He doesn't save people who he's not their Lord. It doesn't happen. And so you, you keep going in Amy's life, and we're almost, uh, we're almost wrapped up with uh, the things that, that Amy's doing. And so she's going on, she's serving in India, and uh, she's beginning to meet people who have never been reached with the gospel. Not just people who have never who are not being reached, but she's reaching classes of people who don't have any shot of talking to, to Christians at all. And some of the people that she meets are temple prostitutes. Like you read, uh, in the Bible that you've got, uh, temple prostitution going on, like in the book of first Corinthians around the turn of time of Christ. Well, in India, you've got temple prostitutes as all. And she ends up meeting some of these girls and sharing the gospel with them. These are women who their only job in life is to serve in the temple with that vocation. It's their caste in the India system. Like they can't get away from it. And she's taken the gospel to these people. There's places where she's going in India. She says in Japan when you would travel to different cities. You could stay in something like a hotel. And you could minister among the people. And then you could go back to your village when your time there was up. She said but in India they wouldn't let you into their village at all. Because you were unclean. You were from a different caste, and if they had any sort of, if they let you sleep at their house, they would be brought down a level. Like all you guys familiar with this Indian system? And so she said, so they ended up buying a tent, and they would sleep in a tent outside of the city. And she talks about the tent being a mere physical provision, but listen to what she's worried about. She says, the tent was a mere physical provision. What about the readiness to be a vessel broken for the Lord? Continually surrendered into the hands of death for Jesus' sake. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.11, So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in this mortal body. That was the crying need. The life, visible, tangible evidence of the truth of what they preached. Too much talk had been heard. Too many professions made without that unarguable revelation. Camping in the villages would give Christ ambassadors the opportunity to show the life they talked about. And so, gang, the question on the table for us is, is what does our life look like? If we're even sharing the gospel, the hope that's found only in Christ, does it match up with the life that we're living? Do we find our hope and glory and joy in Christ? Or are we finding our hope and joy and glory in other things? I get to meet a lot of different people and I get to meet a lot of people who are very well off, who are followers of Christ, right? And this question comes up in my mind. If Christ took every single thing that you had and he was all you had left, would you still speak of him with the same fervor you do because you're affluent and everything's going well in your life? It's a very valid question. If God took everything you had. You lost it all, he took it, either one. Would you still serve Christ with the same fervency that you speak of him now? And if the answer is no, then you may be serving Christ for the things that he has to offer you instead of what you have to offer him. That's a very scary place for us to be. And so if you were to go by my house right now, I have what I think is a nice boat parked in my front yard. And I've told you before, I give that boat to God every time I see it. Because I don't want anything that I have 
to be a stumbling block for anything that he calls me to do. And so my wife would not be surprised at all if I came home one day and you just cross your fingers if you hope something doesn't happen. And she wouldn't be surprised at all if this week I came home and said, honey, I feel like the Lord is calling us to give this, this or this to somebody else. She wasn't surprised when I came home and said, honey, there's a heroin addict in town that is going to stay with us for the unforeseeable future. Because that's what surrendering everything to Christ looks like. That everything is always on the table. And whether he lets you keep it or whether he makes you give it away, you're going to follow him and you're going to serve him all the more. And so we're going to finish up with a great story that she tells, right? We're not going to finish up on a, on a, on a low note. And so she talks about how difficult things are. But then she also talks about that there's, there's also highlights along the way. Right? It's not all dreary. It's not all difficult. But there's some highlights. And so she's talked about her meeting these people, these temple prostitutes, and these other sorts of people. And she also has a lot of what I would call New Testament experiences. Where she goes to a place that doesn't know the name of Christ. They are worshiping idols, which are demons, Paul tells us. And things that happen to Jesus begin to happen to her. You remember when Jesus would go into a place that was unclean or filled with demons, the demons would shout out things at him? Well, she has some of these same experiences. Listen to this. She says, never once were the members of the band, this is not a a rock band, but this is the group of missionaries, never once were the members of the band asked to come back and teach again. So they were one-shot wonders, right? They would go to an area, they would preach, and they were never invited back again. Go, said one woman, we neither want you nor your book nor your way. An old leper called out, who wants your Lord Jesus here? A devil dancer with her hair matted and twisted, her face spotted and smeared with idol marks, snarled at them. Your God is no God. If I come to him, my devil God will kill me. He is God. Yours died. You say, died and was buried. Your God is no God. Go away and tell your lies somewhere else. Who asked you to tell them here? And so that's the sort of thing she's faced with and taking the gospel to a place that has never had it before. Not all rejected the truth. There were now and then occasions of tremendous joy when at sunset all the Christians streamed out to the nearest lake and the new believer was buried with Christ in baptism. A little to the right, the devil shrines. A little to the left, the devil temple. And we on the shore stood watching, praying, and singing. One boy stood straight and fearless as he told his story. His father was a sage. One day the boy said, Father, I have a load. The burden of sin is heavy. What can I do to get rid of my sin? Learn the thousand stanzas and your sin will melt away, he learned. He learned them, but the burden was heavy still. Is there no other way, he asked. You are young. Wait for a year or two. Then you may find the way. But what if he should die? At last... A thirst like the thirst for water came, and I was thirsty, thirsty. He heard the Christian sing a gospel song, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Next morning, he came to Jesus and drank. Where was my burden then? Where was my thirst? Gone as the dew when it sees the sun. And so she tells in the midst of all of this heartache and trouble that every once in a while, someone broke through. Every once in a while, there was someone who came to Christ to be freed from their sin. Brothers and sisters, whether you're in Africa or Ireland 
or China or Japan or India. Our lives should be given. All. All of our lives should be given. So that people can be freed from their sin. Because everything that we're working for in this world will rust or burn up one day. And the only thing that's going to last forever are things done for the Lord. And so we need to be putting all of our time and resources into reaching lost people for the kingdom of God. And that's not just our church. That's individuals in our church. That's you and me. And I would say, and I hate to say it because you guys are the faithful few here, that if we were going to take an honest assessment of where we are, that we're falling short. That we're missing the mark. And it breaks my heart. And that's not me pointing the finger at you. That's me collectively saying us that I think that we could do better. I know on my end, I can do better. And so I want to pray during our hymn of invitation. I want to pray that uh, for myself, that the Lord would help me to keep things in context, to remember what our mission is here on this earth, and to, as encouragement from Amy Carmichael, to live every moment trying to point people to Christ. And so if you'll pray with me, and then Andy and Linda will lead us in a song. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be your people, called by your name, that we would be set apart, that we would live lives that are not lethargic, but I pray that we would live lives that are 100% focused on the gospel. I pray that that gospel would indeed be the power of God unto salvation for our lives. And Father, I pray that through the joy and satisfaction we have in following you, Not the joy and satisfaction that we take in our things, but the joy and satisfaction that's found in following you. Lord, I pray that that would come across to other people. And Lord, I pray that they would see that you are worth burning all of their idols for. And so, Father, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. And pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and turn to hymn number 47, and we'll sing the first verse. God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whatever be God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love, God will. see you guys today. I hope that uh, Amy's life has been uh, encouraging and, uh, and motivating for us.
as his followers. I look forward to wrapping things up uh, with her next week. And uh, don't forget, we've got a lot of announcements in our bulletin and in our church email. I hope that you guys have a great week. And I'm going to ask, uh, actually, i got Bill to pray early. I'm going to get Jack if you'll close us in prayer.